0: Thank you. slay sleigh you pulled up on. Very environmentally friendly. So what do you think? Do you like the suit? I had to get it taken out a little bit. It's a little tight around the belly. Well, welcome back to Wicked Garden Podcast, and welcome to our studio. Tonight we got something planned a little bit special for you. We're going to call this our biannual Christmas special. And what we're trying to do tonight is bring back the Victorian tradition of telling ghost stories and scary stories on a Christmas night. And we hope that you take it and maybe you do it at your house and we can re-spark this tradition because we absolutely love it. So on behalf of myself, Garrett, and Tracy, a very Merry Christmas to you and your loved ones. Thanks for listening all year. Come on in, sit down, grab your beverage of choice over here by the fire and enjoy our Christmas special. Hmm. Purple drank. Excellent choice. Why screw around? Our first story tonight is about Christmas City, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. A place I actually lived for a while. And this is the story of Mary Yeo and the Hotel Bethlehem. Since it first opened its doors in 1921... The Hotel Bethlehem has been home to a number of spirits that have made life interesting for the establishment's inhabitants. For years, guests and staff have reported seeing apparitions, shadows, and unexplained reflections in mirrors and glass. Hotel workers have heard their names called when no one is there, or have reported being tapped on the shoulder by an unseen hand. Often pens drop on a front desk from nowhere. Another frequent phenomenon concerns the hotel's vacuums which have the strange habit of turning on and moving across the floor, even when they're not plugged in. And then there's the famous room 932 aka the room with the Boo, where more than one terrified guest has reported waking up in the middle of the night to see the misty figure of a man standing over the bed and whispering, Why are you in my room before he disappears? Others have witnessed papers standing upright or flying off the desk, lamps flashing on and off and even the bathroom wallpaper turning pink. The owners of the hotel say that they also have numerous photos of the room in which orbs appear. But this is all kid stuff. Mary Yo was born Mary Augustus Yo at the Eagle Hotel in 1866, the granddaughter of the hotel's manager, Caleb Yo, a beloved member of the Moravian community. From an early age, Little May exhibited a flair for the stage and needed no urging to burst into song and dance on the hotel lobby for the delighted guests. She exuded so much potential, in fact, that when she reached her teens, all the Bethlehem Moravians pitched in to send her to Paris for a formal operatic training. But they lived to regret their generosity. May became a success, all right, by 1988, she was a famous stage star, but her fame extended to other less illustrious pursuits. To the proper Moravian's dismay, her sexual liaisons made as many headlines as her talent. Yet in Europe, such indiscretions were accepted and even admired in sophisticated circles. May became so famous that she performed in London for the Prince of Wales, the future King Edward VII, a notorious profligate in his own right. Prince Edward became instantly infatuated with May but the fetching diva's attention were won by the ridiculously wealthy Lord Francis Clinton Hope, owner of the ridiculously valuable 42.5 carat Hope diamond, which May got to wear now and again after she married his lordship. Back in the little town of Bethlehem, residents were both aghast and mesmerized by the stories surrounding Lady Francis, now a member of the British aristocracy and flaunter of the largest diamond in the world the sale of which could have not only paid back her community's investment in her, but bought the entire town and the entire United States to boot. But May's fling with the aristocratic life was short-lived. Lord Francis had been living beyond his means, and ironically, because he'd come by his famous diamond vein inheritance, could not sell it without court permission. Before the court granted that permission, Lord Francis was forced to declare bankruptcy in 1896. Soon afterwards, May was making Bethlehem blush again as the headlines blared that she dumped Lord Francis and run off with a dashing American soldier. That marriage ended in divorce when May discovered that her husband had been stealing her jewelry. May Yo died in 1938 at the age of 72. According to those who knew her, she often spoke nostalgically of her early days in Bethlehem, maintaining that the happiest time of her life was at the Eagleton Hotel when she danced and sang in the lobby as a little girl. And that is where many people have reported seeing her apparition at the piano or hearing her bell-like voice singing the old songs from a long-vanished time. And at Christmas, when the lobby is decorated in all its seasonal finery. Some say they've caught a glimpse of her dressed in lace and satin, standing near the glittering tree. While others swear, they've heard a faint but beautiful voice singing a Christmas carol as if from far away. So how you doing on that drink? Oh, sorry. Did I scare you? Were you nodding off a little bit? Oh, well, take it easy on those. They're pretty strong. All right, let me throw another log on the fire. And uh, we're going to tell you this next one, which is about Tracy's home state of Arkansas. Are you big on harbingers? Like, are you a Mothman person? Harbingers are big in the paranormal. And that might have been the case here with this story. So let's get into it. In December of 2007 in a small town in Arkansas, a mysterious figure appeared walking through the middle of town. He was an odd man, extremely thin and gaunt with sunken-in eyes, dressed in an old Santa Claus suit. The suit had seen better days. It was filthy, torn, and ripped. The beard was matted. Soon, the locals got on the phone and were gossiping with each other about the strange figure who appeared. It wasn't long before a local police officer stopped the man and asked him what he was doing. He answered simply, I'm Santa Claus. The officer demanded that he show identification, and the man couldn't produce any. So, not being able to arrest him and not being able to do anything about it, the officer decided to just simply follow the man as he walked through town. He proceeded to take the sack off his shoulder and deliver gifts to seven homes. The police officer was following closely behind in his cruiser man walked up the driveway and would simply drop a package and then move on to the next home. When he got to the seventh home, the Frester residence, the man simply left an envelope and he walked around the side of the home. The police officer approached, but when he got to the other side of the home, the man was gone. He disappeared in the thin air. The officer got out of his cruiser to check the site. He went around the side and he checked the backyard. Nobody was there. He looked for a door that gentleman could have possibly slipped into couldn't find one behind the home was a hill he looked up the hillside and there was nobody there most of the gifts that the gentleman left were found to be either old papers from offices or useless toys that were broken but the envelope that he delivered to the Fruster house contained one slip of paper that was written in the man's own hand and it said i am sorry for whatever happens to your son Christmas came and went, the story about the odd Santa soon died down. Two years later, Jamie Frester's son, who was 12 years old, was riding his bike downtown when he was hit by a vehicle and killed. The vehicle didn't stop to lend any support or help. Despite an intense investigation, the driver of that vehicle was never identified, and he never came forward to confess. No one ever found out who this mysterious Santa Claus figure was. Was his letter to the Frester family merely a coincidence? Or did his appearance, disheveled, gaunt, and tortured, provide some evidence that this man may have been tortured by visions from the future? Or was he a harbinger sent from another dimension by the gods of high strangeness who seem to enjoy such random weirdness? That is up to you, dear listener, to decide. Hmm. Kind of makes you think, doesn't it? Well, hey, I got a little bit more NyQuil left and one more Jolly Rancher. So why don't I get you a refill and we'll go back to something a little bit more classic. A story called Mistletoe Bride. Near the windswept coast of Norfolk, England, there stands a manor house by the name of Brockdish Hall. And they say that on Christmas Eve and on Christmas, a woman in white, roams the halls of this manor house and can also be seen roaming the road down to the gate and floating above the pond.
1: The mistletoe hung in the castle hall The holly branch shone on the old oak wall The barons retainers were blithe and gay Keeping the Christmas holiday the Baron beheld with her father's pride his beautiful child, Lord Lovell's bride. And she with her bright eyes seemed to be the star of that godly company. Oh, the mistletoe bow. Oh, the mistletoe bow.
0: It's a chilly story for a winter's night, a Christmas wedding. A flirtatious game that ends in tragedy. The Mistletoe Bow is essentially a horror story, but thanks to a popular poem written by Thomas Haines Bailey in the eighteen thirties, became a song sung at Christmas time in Victorian households. The Victorians did love to cast a shadow over even the most joyous of occasions. Bailey's poem tells the story of a wedding held in a grand hall decked with holly and mistletoe, a baron's daughter marrying a lord in a lavish ceremony. Filled with feasting and dancing.
1: I'm weary of dancing now, she cried. Here, tarry a moment, I'll hide, I'll hide. And love will be sure, you're the first to trace. The clue to my secret hiding place. Away she ran and her friends began. Each tower to search and each nook to scan. And young level cried, oh, where do you hide? I'm lonesome without you, my own fair bride. Oh, the mistletoe bow. Oh, the mistletoe bow.
0: Many grand houses across the land have laid claim to the mistletoe bride, including Brockdish Hall, six miles east of this in Norfolk which was built in the 17th century in Elizabethan style with distinctive step gables it stands close to the site of a far earlier Modit manor house which had served the parish since medieval times back to the poem and a new bride has disappeared without a trace
1: they sought to that night they sought the next day they sought her in vain when a week passed away in the highest the lowest, the lonely spot Young Lovell sought wildly but found her not The years passed by and their grief at last Was told as a sorrowful tale long past. And when Lovell appeared all the children cried See the old man weeps for his fairy bride Oh, the mistletoe boughs Oh the mistletoe bow
0: At around the time when a mistletoe bow was set, it was common for rich merchants to offer a marriage chest or a cassone as part of a bride's dowry. The intricate chests, often ornately carved or painted, were given to couples on their wedding night. There is one such painted chest from the mid-fifteenth century at Bickling Hall, somewhat coffin like in appearance. Was it such a chest that the mischievous young bride clambered into? Little realizing that when she shut the heavy oak lid, that she was imprisoning herself in what would become her tomb. In a remote corner of the hall, she waited to be found. and She waited. and She waited. Realizing that no one was coming, she decided to relinquish her clever hiding place, at which point she realized that a hidden spring in the chest lid had effectively locked her firmly shut. Her screams for help fell on deaf ears muffled by the thick wood. Her fingernails tore at the wood in vain. Some believe her new husband believed that she had developed cold feet about their union and on the pretext of playing a game had escaped into the night. Lavelle, the poem recalls, continued to pine for his lost wife even as he grew old, weeping for his fairy bride. Fifty years had passed and then finally the mystery was solved. At length, an oak chest that had long lain hidden was found in the castle. They raised the lid, and a skeleton form lay moldering there. Some say that the skeleton was found clasping a sprig of mistletoe, perhaps to claim a kiss from her new husband.
1: At length, an old chest that had long lain hid Was found in the castle, they raised the lid A skeleton form lay mouldering there In the bridal wreath of that lady fair How sad the day when in sportive jest She hid from her lord in the old oak chest It closed with a din and a dreadful doom And the bride lay clasped in a living tomb Oh, the mistletoe bomb. Oh, the mistletoe bough
0: guys still with us cool well i got one more story for you it's a crazy disappearance story from the northwest it takes place right around this time of year it's the martin family disappearance Sunday, December 7th, 1958, at around 1 p.m., the Martin family gathered into their 1954 cream and red-colored Ford station wagon and headed towards the Columbia River gorge. Their intention was to collect a Christmas tree and greenery from the surrounding woodlands to use for Christmas decorations around their home. Three hours later, the family stopped at a gas station in the city of Cascade Locks, 40 miles from their home. They then ate at the Paradise Snack Bar in the city of Hood River, 20 miles further from Cascade Locks, placing them around 60 miles from their home. A waitress named Clara York confirmed that all appeared normal and they left the restaurant without incident at around 5 p.m. This, though, would later raise questions, as many who knew Ken Martin stated that he would avoid driving at night due to his poor eyesight. This was the last time any sightings of the Martin family could be verified. On December 9th, Ken's boss, Taylor Eccles, of the Eccles Electric Home Service Company, reported Ken missing as he had not shown up to work, something that was extremely unusual for Ken to do. That night at around 11 p.m., police arrived at the home of the Martin family. They noted no signs of a break-in, dishes were still in the sink, load of clothing was still in the washing machine and even a santa claus outfit from a christmas party was laid out on a bed wherever the martins were they had always planned to come back within days their disappearance reached the front page of the local papers and as many as five different police agencies all launched separate investigations to find the family Police were quickly able to put together a timeline to verify the family stopped at the gas station and the restaurant, but after that, they were at a loss. During the course of the initial search, police found an abandoned white Chevrolet near Cascade Locks. This car was from Los Angeles and had been reported stolen by its owner. This led police to search for two ex-convicts, Roy Light and Lester Price. There was some suspicion that the two may have been involved in the disappearance of the Martins, as the owner of the Paradise Snack Bar told the police they were at the restaurant at the same time as the Martin family, leaving shortly after the Martins. Ultimately, there wasn't enough to link them to the Martins' disappearance, and they were never questioned. But the police had reason to believe the Martins were still out there somewhere, as they received multiple calls and tips with sightings all throughout the area. Several witnesses claimed to see the Martins or people matching their description in other parts of Oregon, Iowa, and even Montana, but none of those sightings could be verified. As the case appeared to grow cold, a man in Cascade Locks found a 38 caliber handgun coated in dried blood near where the white Chevy had been abandoned. The butt of the gun was damaged, appearing to have been used to smash something, and there was a fired shell casing in the chamber. The man brought the gun to the Hood River Sheriff, who unbelievably never processed the gun or took samples of it for evidence. The sheriff eventually returned the gun to the man who found it, allowing him to keep it. But a link between the gun and a member of the Martin family was eventually found. In 1955, prior to their older son, Donald Martin, leaving Oregon for the Navy... He worked at the Meyer and Frank department store, but was fired after he was accused of stealing $2,000 worth of merchandise from the sporting goods section. The serial number of the handgun that was found confirmed it was one of the items that was never recovered from the theft. But when Donald was questioned about the theft, he claimed his co-worker and friend Wayne was the actual culprit and not himself. Nothing more was able to be ascertained from the gun as the new owner cleaned and repaired it after retrieving it from the sheriff. It seemed as if we would never know what happened to the Martin family, but in February of 1959, a volunteer searcher found tire tracks leading off a cliff and into the river near the city of Dallas in Oregon. Police confirmed it matched the tires on the Martin's car and were also able to send some paint chips found at the scene to the FBI. The FBI then confirmed the paint was the same paint that would have been on the make and model of the Martin's car. It appeared as if the Martin family had somehow ended up driving off the cliff and into the river. Despite attempts to search the water and even lowering the level of the river by five feet with the help of the United States Army Corps of Engineers, the police could find no trace of the Martins or their car. On May 1st, 1959, during a dredging operation, a barge dropped anchor and hooked onto something believed to be large and metallic, but whatever it was broke off when the crew attempted to pull it up. At the time, the crew thought nothing more of it. Until by the end of the week, police found the bodies of Suzanne and Virginia Martin. Police now believe the anchor caught onto the Martin's car and caused it to dislodge in a way that would allow the two bodies to float out of it. For a moment, it seemed the rest of the family's bodies would also appear at some point, but they never did. And the bodies of Suzanne and Virginia raised more questions. The field evidence technician who fingerprinted and photographed the bodies noted on his report that the bodies of Virginia and Susan had a hole in each of their skulls. Interestingly, though, the coroner did not note the holes and determined cause of death was drowning. The autopsy also found fries and burgers in the girl's stomach, which was the meal waitress Clara York told police she served the family at the Paradise Snack Bar. This meant whatever happened to the family had to have occurred only hours after leaving Any other sightings from throughout December 1958 could not have been the family, or at least not the whole family. The girls' bodies were then cremated. After this, police searched the river again, hoping to find evidence of the car and the rest of the family. But after a diver almost drowned in the river during a search, it was called off. The rest of the Martin family were never found. Donald Martin eventually returned for a short time to settle the estate. He was questioned by detectives, but was cleared of any wrongdoing, especially as many at the time now believed the deaths were an accident. Others, though, believe there was some level of foul play involved in Martin's death and disappearance, and to this day, many are still looking for answers. The most prevailing theory accuses Donald Martin of being involved in the deaths of his family. It was revealed Donald Martin had a strained relationship with his family due to him possibly being gay and having been caught with a man in the house by his parents. This was corroborated by his friend Wayne in an interview with journalists in 2008. Some believe Donald was the only person who had the motive to kill the family in order to receive the inheritance and worked with the two ex-cons in order to carry out the murders. It also seems extremely coincidental that a gun Donald stole years prior just happens to be found near where the family went missing. But this raises multiple questions. How would Donald have met Roy Light and Lester Price and arranged their murders from the other side of the country while in the Navy and then not leave a trail? Why would Donald have them use a gun that would have connected him directly to the murders and how would they have gotten the gun in the first place? Finally, the inheritance took eight years to be settled, meaning Donald had nothing to gain for all that time. So why take such a huge risk? Unfortunately, Donald did not help his case when he appeared to not show any emotion to the deaths and disappearance of his family. During the search for the family, Donald made no efforts to help her return to Oregon. After Virginia and Suzanne were found, he did not attend the memorial service and claimed there was a mix-up in the dates. After they were cremated, Donald never picked up his sister's ashes. Virginia and Susan's ashes sat at the funeral home unclaimed for a decade before they were picked up by an unnamed relative. Donald Martin eventually moved to Hawaii, got married, and had four children of his own before passing away in 2004. He never spoke about what happened to his family and refused all interviews. But it's possible Donald had nothing to do with the deaths and disappearances, and more likely, he simply cut his family out of his life after they sent him away because of his life choices. Another theory points directly at Roy Light and Lester Price. Without any possible motivators, both ex-comics were already on the run after having stolen the white Chevy, and it's possible they spotted the Martins at the Paradise Snack Bar, seeing them as an easy target. This would fit with the owner stating that the two left just after the Martin family. What if, after sending Donald away, Ken found the gun among his possessions and decided to keep it in the car's glove compartment for safety? Then when approached or attacked by Roy and Lester, he revealed the gun in an attempt for self-defense. During a struggle, Roy or Lester obtained the gun, fired a single shot at one of the family, and then used the butt of the gun to strike the rest of the family unconscious. This would then explain the holes in the heads of Virginia and Susan. Next, they would have forced the car off the cliff and into the river. But this theory also raises multiple questions. Why would Roy and Lester dispose of the gun near a car they just stole, tying it back to them so easily? What motive would they have to kill the family? It's not thought that the Martins were carrying a lot of cash with them, and there were no reports of credit card statements arriving in the mail aside from the charges at the gas station. The final theory states Ken Martin was behind the deaths of his family and accidentally drove off the cliff due to night having fallen in his lack of visibility. The question this raises is the gun. What was it doing bloody and close to where the family were at one point during the day? It seemed like too much of a coincidence for it to not be connected to the disappearance of the family. It appears we may never get the answers to any of the questions as the multiple attempts to search the river have been unsuccessful. The latest attempt in 1999 was unable to find anything as the area where the car is believed to have fallen and can reach up to 160 feet deep. The question as to what happened to the Martin family and the circumstances around their disappearance might forever be a mystery. There have been recent attempts by the YouTubers Adventures with Purpose to search for the Martin family. And they were in the process of making some videos about it when they were hit by a scandal and their founder, Jared Lysick, was arrested. Hopefully that's not the end and someone else takes up the mantle of searching for the family's missing vehicle. Well, that wraps it up for me on my end. You don't got to go home, but you can't stay here. I really appreciate this fruitcake. But hey, you're in luck. Party's just getting started over at G's. He's four hours behind. So go ahead and climb in that rocket you got out there and head over to Alaska. And thanks for listening. Oh, and if he tries to serve you cheap liquor, tell him you want the top shelf stuff.
2: He's got it. Merry Christmas, everyone. G here, coming to you from Alaska, not too far from the North Pole, where it's about seven degrees out on this cold, windy, wintery Christmas Eve night. I wanted to invite you guys into my little nook here, where I got a fire popping, coffee freshly brewed, and Santa's just had a few nips of brandy, so we're feeling pretty warm and cozy inside. Sit back, relax, and join me for a few short stories. We got holiday hauntings, classic Christmas poltergeists, and some Yuletide UFO activity. Historically, Christmas Eve is one of the hottest days of the year for UFO reports. And when you think about Christmas and UFO activity, you may think about Rendlesham, which I think we all probably do or maybe even the events that unfolded in whitley Struber's communion. The followings from NASA recordings and an article written for Smithsonian Magazine by Edward Owens in December 2005. Just ten days before Christmas, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration got an early holiday present. Astronauts Walter M. Shearer and Thomas P. Stafford, one of the Gemini 6, had rendezvous in space with Gemini 7, piloted by Frank Borman and Jim LaBelle. The Gemini 6 had been launched into orbit several days after Gemini 7. Shearer and Stafford maneuvered their capsule to within a few feet of their sister ship for the first historic prearranged meeting in space. This is the first time that two spacecraft had ever linked up, and it required expert piloting and assistance from ground control. Shortly afterward, just before Stafford and Shearer were scheduled to re-enter Earth's atmosphere, the pair reported that they had seen some sort of UFO. Shear recounted, We have an object, looks like a satellite going from north to south, probably in polar orbit, looks like he might be re-entering soon. You just might let me pick up that thing. I see a command module in the rear, and 8 smaller modules up front. The pilot of the command module is wearing some sort of red suit, and then this was transmitted to ground control in Gemini 7. Six, And that was the first live music ever played in space. These guys had smuggled on a harmonica and miniature sleigh bells. Those very same instruments are on display at the Smithsonian. While not exactly hair-raising, I couldn't not tell you that story. December 23rd, 1878 was the first time that Edward F. Smith and his family had experienced the paranormal at their home on Clinton Avenue in Brooklyn. They had all been sitting around the fireplace enjoying a quiet evening when suddenly the doorbell rang. Not expecting anyone, Edward got up and opened the door. Nobody was there. He stepped outside looked up and down the street halfway expecting to see a prankster running off. Not only did he not see anyone, but there weren't even tracks in the snow. Now later on in the night, after the family went to sleep and everyone was in their beds, Edward awoke to the sound of the doorbell once again ringing. He was frustrated, but he got out of bed and went to open the door. When he got down there once again, there was nobody. The following day on Christmas Eve, nothing notable happened during the daylight hours. But once again in the evening, after his family gathered around the fireplace, that doorbell rang. And this time it was accompanied by some knocks. Edward had had enough at this point. He was convinced there was some sort of logical explanation for this. But whoever it was, whatever it was, was disrupting his family's Christmas Eve. The knocking and the ringing continued all through the night, at least once every hour. And it continued until daylight on Christmas day. When the family should have been awaking to a happy Christmas morning, they were exhausted from a night full of dread. Edward called the police and told him what had happened. Skeptical about what he had just told him, they informed him that they would drop by in the event that the knocking persisted through Christmas night. And a few hours later after the sun went down, the doorbell rang. Not only that, but the knocking returned and now windows were rattling out of their frames and shutters were going like crazy. There was no wind to speak of, no pranksters, just no explanation. When the police initially arrived on a scene, the phenomena had suddenly stopped. After a couple hours of complete silence, the police began to grow even more skeptical of Edwards' claims. That soon changed as soon as the doorbell rang, and when it did, the police officer stationed inside jumped up and opened the door to find nobody. Within seconds, all the activity was in full swing. You had the doorbell going, the knocks, windows were shaking out of their frames, and the police were pretty shook about this. And just as suddenly as it started, a brick came flying through the back window, and it stopped. Nothing after that. It can't be explained. Now, at this point in my research, I am unable to determine the sex and ages of his children. But I'm willing to bank one of them's a teenage girl because this sounds like classic poltergeist activity to me so I've taken you from outer space to Brooklyn now let me take you across the pond to the UK Have you heard about the Bradley Woods Woman in Black? Black lady, black lady, I've stolen your baby. The black lady is a ghost that reportedly haunts the woods near Bradley Lincolnshire, England. Allegedly, eyewitnesses have described her as being young and pretty, around 5'6", dressed in a flowing black cloak and a black hood that obscures her hair but reveals a pale, mournful, tear-soaked face. This from Wikipedia. The story's been told for many generations. It was once used by parents to frighten children. This appears to have been a common practice among parents in the area, and children were warned that if they're not safely in bed by a certain time, then the black lady will get you. One theory that's been put forward is the apparition is that of a nun from a nearby convent in an area called Grimsby. The theory gives no reason why the black lady's a nun, but many eyewitnesses have described her as matching the appearance of a nun. Another popular theory is that she's just a spinster who lives in an isolated cottage in the woods. Children often came across this cottage, and the woman would become angry when her privacy and solitude was breached. Then imaginary tales of witchcraft were exaggerated and became legend. Neither of these theories tie into the folklore, though. The myth, however, takes place in the 15th century during the War of the Roses, or alternatively, the Baron's War. A woodsman, his wife... their baby lived in the woods. Eventually, the woodsman had to leave and fight in the war. After a few months of anticipating his return, the woman became so eager that she would march out to the edge of the woods with her baby every day, hoping to catch a glimpse of her husband returning. One day, however, she found the enemy instead. They were just crossing Humber and marching towards Lincoln. She tried to run back to her cottage but the woman was set upon by three horsemen who brutally raped her and snatched her baby away. They rode off laughing into the woods. Heartbroken and humiliated she wandered the woods searching in vain for her child and husband and never found them. After her death people began to see her wander the woods still carrying on with a never-ending search. To this day, she's still tormented as it's become a rite of passage for teenagers to go out to those woods on Christmas Eve and chant, Black Lady, Black Lady, I've Stolen Your Baby. Happy Holidays, everyone. And remember, if you're hearing the sounds of hooves trotting across your rooftop, it may not be reindeer. It may be that old Jersey Devil.
3: Is that you, Santa Claus? Gifts I'm preparing for some Christmas sharing, but I pause because hang in my stocking, I can hear a knocking. Is that you, Santa Claus? Shoe is dark out, ain't the slightest spark out. On my clacking jaw Who's there, who is it? Uh, Stopping for a visit? Is that you, Santa Claus? Are you bringing a present for me? Something pleasantly pleasant for me That is just what I've been waiting for Would you mind slipping it under the door? Cold winds are howling. How could that be growling? My legs feel like stars. Yeah, my, my, oh, me, my. Kindly will you reply, is that you, Santa Claus? Yes, yeah, hanging the stocking, I can hear a knocking. Is that you, Santa Claus? Are you stopping for a visit? Is that you? Santa Claus! Oh, that Santa, you gave me a scare. Now stop teasing, because I know you're there. Oh, we don't believe in no doubtless today. But well, I can't explain why I'm shaking that way. Better I can see old Santa in the keyhole. I'll get to the cause one beacon I'll try there oh there's an eye there statues and a cloud. please please I pay my niece. say that's you Santa take thats it all right